Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 6. In the green church Bibles, that's page 691. And in the larger print Bibles, 1069. Last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 5, and we said then that the first five chapters of this book are the preface, really, or the introduction to the book. They set out the situation in which Isaiah is going to minister for decades, actually. So the first five chapters show us the circumstances in Judah and Jerusalem. Those circumstances are, briefly, that Judah and Jerusalem are outwardly prosperous. They are materially prosperous, but they are in a spiritual mess. And their spiritual state is working itself out in all kinds of injustice and all kinds of oppression. And now, now that we know the situation, Isaiah is going to tell us how he came to be God's messenger in that situation. He tells us about his call. So let's read uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is God's Word. And it is significant for several reasons. Most obviously, it describes Isaiah's own experience, but it also shows the way forward for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah's personal experience here is a model for how the people need to see and how they need to respond to what they see. And As you and I look at this, I hope we will discover this is a model for you and me as well. But before we get to that, we need to understand the passage in its context. 
And the first verse of chapter 6 gives us the context. It gives us a point in history. What we're going to read about happened in the year that King Uzziah died. So that is 740, 739 B.C. Uzziah is sometimes referred to as Azariah. He reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. So he provided a long period of stability. And his reign was a time of progress and prosperity in a lot of ways. He extended the borders of Judah. He carried out successful military campaigns. He strengthened the defenses of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And economically, things went pretty well under Uzziah's reign. In Isaiah's introduction in chapter 2, he told us the land was full of silver and gold. But now, after 52 years of stability and prosperity, there's uncertainty. The king is dead. What is the antidote to that kind of uncertainty? The antidote is to see the higher king on his higher throne. That is what Isaiah sees. Isaiah is granted a vision of supreme majesty. In verse 1, he says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It may be that Isaiah is somewhere in the courts of the temple when he's given this vision. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where God's presence touched the earth. He was present there. But it was understood that the temple could not contain God. It couldn't hold all there was of him. And here in this vision, that's very clear. Isaiah says the temple could only accommodate the train of his robe. Just the hem of his garment. And so then, that being the case, we've got to ask, how big must the throne be that rises up above the temple? How big must the one sitting on the throne be? This throne and the one on it are high over all. And you'll notice there's no description here of God himself. His robe is mentioned, his throne is mentioned, in a moment his attendants will be mentioned, but no description of God himself. The sense is God's majesty is so great, it is ultimately beyond description. We can get a sense of it as the things around him are described. The words of his attendants will give us an even greater sense of his majesty, but a full description is beyond human words. It's beyond human ability to fully grasp the greatness of his majesty. As I can only give us a sense of it. And the same is true of the other places in the Bible where human beings see God on his throne. We read one of those passages earlier, Revelation chapter 4. In each of those passages, there's a sense that what's being seen is beyond the power of human description. Only the edges of his majesty can be conveyed to us. Only the fringes of it. So these descriptions of God on the throne are not intended as exhaustive descriptions. They're giving us just enough to let us know this is the incomparable one. This is the one who is high over all. This is the one who has no equal this is the one who reigns with unrivaled power. Look at his attendants in verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. These seraphim are likely the beings that in other places are called cherubim. They seem to fulfill the same role. They attend the one on the throne. They do his will. Why do they cover their faces? So they won't be overwhelmed by the sight of the majestic one on the throne. Why do they cover their feet? Well, probably because our feet set our direction. They set our course. But these attendants of God are here to be directed by God. 
They're not looking to go their own way or set their own path. And with their remaining two wings, the seraphim fly. The word seraphim means burning ones. And the sense may be that as they hover above the throne, their constantly moving wings are like flickering flames. So this is not a picture of stationary majesty. God's presence is not a place of lethargy. It's not a place place of inertia or passivity. This is dynamic majesty. This scene is alive. It's electric. The will of the one on the throne will be carried out instantly. And as they are poised to obey, what do these burning ones say in verse 3? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The first thing to notice is the seraphim leave no doubt as to the identity of the one on the throne. He is the Lord Almighty, literally the Lord of hosts. When we see the name Lord in capital letters in our Bible, we know it's translating the name Yahweh, the personal name of the God of the Bible. So this this is not an unknowable God. This is the God who has made himself known in the Bible. And the historical events that are recorded in the Bible. We can learn about him, we can learn his character and his will by reading the Bible. And he is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. That's one of the most common ways of referring to God in the Old Testament. It's been used several times already in the opening chapters of Isaiah. A host is an army. And calling the Lord the Lord of hosts is a way of saying he has power over every other power. One writer says about his name, the Lord of hosts, it means there is no being or force in heaven or earth that does not depend on him and whose destiny is not determined by him. That's what it means for the Lord to be almighty. And the seraphim call out that the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, is holy, holy, holy. He is three times holy. Meaning, in the words of another writer, he is not merely holy or very holy, but utterly holy. He is supremely, uniquely holy. This declaration of God's utter holiness made such an impression on Isaiah that he liked to refer to God as the Holy One of Israel. He uses that title all the way through this book. It's only used a handful of times outside of the book of Isaiah. God is utterly holy. But what does it mean to be holy? What it boils down to is this. Holiness is a characteristic that belongs to God. It applies to God in a unique way. Particularly, it applies to his purity. He is pure in a way that makes him distinct from everyone and everything else. Separate from everyone and everything else. There is no evil in him. Not even a hint of evil. Not in him or in anything that he does. There is no injustice. There is no unrighteousness. Not even a trace. He is perfect and he is unique in his holiness. When it comes to purity, he is in a class of his own. And yes, it is true that other things can be called holy, but only in the sense that they belong to God, only in the sense that they're set apart for God. God is holy. And people or things are holy to the degree that they're given over to God's service. In verse 3, these seraphim also proclaim that the whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord Almighty. In other words, who He is can be seen in what He has created and in what He does in history. So what Isaiah is seeing here 
is just a fuller look at what can be seen at any time. Simply by looking at what God has made. Reading about how he has interacted with what he has made. His glory is there in plain sight for those who are ready to see it. But it is also true that Isaiah is being given a privileged look behind the curtain here. What he's seeing here is a vision of how things really are all the time. This is not a special show put on just for Isaiah. It might help us to picture the front of a stage with the curtain drawn shut across the stage. Most of you will have been to a school assembly hall or a theater that had a curtain like that. Small part of the stage is in front of the curtain. Often people will stand in that space in front of the curtain and they'll talk. They might even sing and dance in front of the curtain. But usually at some point, that curtain is pulled back to reveal a whole set. It's much more involved than what was on display in front of the curtain. The curtain is pulled back and we come to realize there's a whole lot more going on here than was visible at first. And that is a little bit like our lives. It's a little bit like our, like our knowledge of history and our knowledge of world events. If the world is like a stage, as somebody once said, we see what's happening just in front of the curtain. We don't normally see the much fuller reality behind the curtain. The reality where the utterly holy Lord of hosts is reigning from his throne. High and exalted over every other throne and every other power. We normally don't see that with our eyes the way Isaiah does here. But what Isaiah sees is the way things really are all the time. This vision of the fuller reality behind the curtain was given to Isaiah and it was written down by Isaiah, not just for him. It was given so that you and I can fix our minds and hearts on it. So we can let it be the vision that forms our outlook. It forms our ideas about what's going on around us. This is the awareness and understanding you and I need to live with. Because what Isaiah saw is how things really are all the time. There's an old book called, Your God is Too Small. Meaning, your ideas about God are too small. And that is probably true for each one of us. Even as Christians, we tend to have small thoughts about God. We tend to have big thoughts about other things, like who's in government or who might be in government. We tend to have big ideas about the challenges we face, about our power or our lack of power. But when we read Isaiah's vision or John's vision in Revelation 4, the message is your ideas about God are too small. Look at the reality of him. Look at the greatness of him. You can't see it with your eyes all the time, but it is there all the time. It is true all the time. Live your life with a big view of God that Isaiah and John and others in Scripture were privileged to see. And these looks behind the curtain they were given. Keep coming back often to this reality. Let it fill your mind and heart with the supreme majesty of God. The truth that God is utterly pure and holy. He is above reproach in all of His ways. And he's utterly powerful. There is no being or force in heaven or earth that does not depend on him. And whose destiny is not determined by him. That's what we're to do. To fill our mind and heart with this vision. But here is the catch. When we fill our minds and heart with this, the first thing it will do 
is not to reassure us or calm us. The first thing it will do is terrify us. There's already a hint of that in verse 4 where Isaiah tells us, at the sound of their voices, that's the seraph's voices proclaiming God's holiness, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. These sights and sounds are amazing, but they are not comfortable. There is an awesomeness to this that is actually frightening. And in verse 5, we find out why it's frightening. Isaiah tells us in verse 5 how he reacts to what he saw. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The sight of God's supreme majesty does not cause Isaiah to dance with joy. He doesn't run towards the throne to catch up and have a chin wag with this utterly holy one. Not at all. Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm done for. I'm as good as dead. Why? Because the one on the throne is utterly pure and Isaiah is not. Now, we, we might be surprised by Isaiah's reaction because, after all, isn't Isaiah one of the good guys in this whole scenario? We've heard plenty in the opening chapters about the sin and rebellion of Judah and Jerusalem, but Isaiah is different, isn't he? He's on God's side. Surely Isaiah has no need to worry. Surely he'll be fine in God's presence. He'll be good enough, won't he? Is that how you feel about yourself? You feel that maybe other people would be ruined if they entered God's presence, but I'll be okay. Maybe they'd be as good as dead in the presence of utter holiness, but I reckon I'd just about survive it. If that is how you're thinking, then listen to Isaiah. Yes, relative to his own people in Jerusalem and Judah, Isaiah certainly is one of the good guys. But the comparison here is not between Isaiah and the people down the street. The comparison is between Isaiah and the utterly holy God. And when he sees the reality of God, Isaiah knows he won't survive this okay. Yes, Isaiah agrees. He lives among a people of unclean lips. But that does not reassure him at all because he knows he's a man of unclean lips too. Barry Webb says, in the presence of God, degrees of sin become irrelevant. It is the holiness of God which reveals to us our true condition, not comparison with others. To be unclean is to be contaminated. It's to be unfit for the presence of the utterly holy God, the one who is uncontaminated. But why does Isaiah specifically mention unclean lips? Well, it's hard to be sure, but we've just heard the seraphim praising God. That is what, that's what they live to do. The dominant sound here is their deafening, temple-shaking declaration of God's power and God's holiness. And Isaiah knows only those who can join in that thunderous praise are going to survive. But Isaiah knows if he tried to join in, he would choke on the words. He's unfit to be part of this. His lips, like the rest of him, are unclean. He knows this is the end of him. And that is what a sight of supreme majesty will do to us. It will shake us out of our daft ideas that we're okay, really, 
because we're not as bad as so-and-so. A true grasp of the God who is behind the curtain, the God who's there all the time, high and exalted all the time, it will deliver us from all our delusions about our own goodness and our own cleanness. It will show us our uncleanness. But it need not be the end of us. Because what Isaiah describes next is an experience of purifying grace. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's important to see the initiative here is God's. We're to understand that the seraph is carrying out God's command. And what came immediately before this action by the seraph? Well, what came before was a simple confession of sin. Isaiah didn't try to justify himself. He didn't try to excuse himself. He simply declared his uncleanness. He simply admitted he wasn't fit for God's presence. And the response from the throne is immediate. A live coal is brought from the altar. What's the significance of that? Well, there were two altars in the temple. The altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense. And together, those two altars showed Israel that God could be approached only on the basis of sacrifice. Either the people died or a substitute died in their place, a lamb or a bull or whatever. The animal died on the altar of burnt offering outside the temple building, and from there, from that altar, fire was taken to the altar of incense, which was inside the temple building, and that incense then rose up to God. So it really doesn't make a difference which altar Isaiah is specifically referring to here. Together, the two altars showed God could be approached only on the basis of substitutionary sacrifice. That is what the live coal from the altar signifies. It's a coal from the altars of sacrifice. And touching it to Isaiah's lips brings him the benefit of what the sacrifice accomplished. And so, he will not be ruined. This meeting with God will not be the end of him. Through sacrifice, Isaiah's guilt has been taken away. His sin has been paid for, atoned for. Isaiah will not have to pay for it himself. Isaiah has done nothing to cleanse himself. All he's done is admit his uncleanness and his inability. God has done everything. Isaiah has experienced God's purifying grace. And the message for Judah and Jerusalem is that purifying grace can be yours as well. If you'll come to God and acknowledge your need of it. Last week in chapter 5, we saw that six woes were pronounced on the people. And after that long catalog of woes, it might have seemed at the end of chapter 5 there was no hope for them. But here, we've heard Isaiah pronounce the seventh woe on himself. There seemed to be no hope for him. And yet, he has been forgiven. Others can be forgiven too. And today, the message hasn't changed. If we will acknowledge our true state before God, He is ready to take our guilt away. What has changed is our understanding of how that happens. Because there are no altars anymore. There are no sacrifices anymore. Because there's no need anymore. The New Testament tells us Jesus Christ 
is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. His death on the cross accomplished what those bulls and lambs in the Old Testament could only hint at. They could only foreshadow in a small way. We experience God's purifying grace through the work of Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God. And we are cleansed not by the touch of a burning coal, but by the touch of His blood poured out for us. In the words of the New Testament, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. But if we reject Jesus, if we will not turn to Him, then, yes, we are ruined. When we experience God's purifying grace, what does it produce in us? What effect does it have? Well, we see in this passage it produces a response of willing service. In verse 8, Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Because of what we've just seen in verses 1 to 7, we know very well this is not self-confidence on Isaiah's part. His attitude here is not, here I am, you lucky people. This is not bravado. This is simply what comes from experiencing God's grace. When we experience His grace, we want to serve the God of grace. We want to give our lives to Him. And if we ended here at verse 9, we would have a lovely, feel-good message to take away. God can use you. Make yourself available and see what He does through you. That would be a true message, but it would not adequately prepare us for a life of service to God. The God of the Bible is honest with us. He does not send us on our way with misleading expectations. We run into that kind of thing regularly in life. We sign up for something on the basis of a a stirring presentation that we've been given, or a glossy brochure we've flicked through, or a snazzy website that we've browsed. Looks great. We sign up. And then we find the reality is a bit more gritty than we were led to believe. Things are a bit more demanding than they seemed in the presentation or the brochure or the website. That is a common experience. But we do not have that experience with the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is not like that. Now yes, sometimes we can have wrong expectations about what serving God is going to be like. But those wrong expectations are because we haven't listened carefully enough to God. God does not hide the gritty aspects of service from us. He does not hide the fact that serving Him is demanding. He lets us know about that up front. Serving Him is a glorious privilege, and it's not always easy. In the short or even in the medium term, it doesn't always bring gratifying results. Look what God explains to Isaiah in verse 9. Isaiah has just raised his hand to volunteer for service, and God says in verse 9, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. 
But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What are we to make of this commission that God gives Isaiah? Well, the gist of it is, God is letting Isaiah know his service will be successful, but not successful in the way Isaiah was probably hoping it would be. Ultimately, Isaiah's faithful ministry, his clear proclamation over decades, ultimately will not cause the people of Judah and Jerusalem to turn to God in repentance. It will result in them being hardened in their unbelief until the land is laid waste. Verse 9 is describing how the people currently are. It summarizes what we've seen in the first five chapters of the book. The people of Jerusalem and Judah hear God's word, but they don't understand it. If they did, they would fall on their knees and ask God for mercy. They see, but they don't perceive their real condition. And verse 10 describes what will happen when Isaiah proclaims God's message to them. They will become hardened in their unbelief and their lack of repentance. Why will this happen? What's the cause of this hardening? Well, there are two aspects to it. On one hand, the people like their sin. They like living to accumulate and indulge themselves. They like being wise in their own eyes. They like trusting their own wisdom instead of God's instruction. We heard about that last week. They love their sin. And each time they reject God's call to repentance, they become a little bit more hardened against the message. If you're not a Christian, do you realize that's what happens? Every time you hear the good news about Jesus and do not respond to it, things don't stay the same. Over time, you become hardened to the message you're hearing. You may finally become totally hardened to it. So don't keep putting off the decision to come to Jesus. There might be a day when you're just not interested anymore. That's one element of this. God is telling Isaiah the people will keep on choosing their sin because they prefer it. Their continual rejection of the message will harden them against the message. But there is another element to this. God is telling Isaiah, these people have been rejecting me for generations. Read the Old Testament and you'll see that. They've been rejecting God for generations and he has been patient for generations. But now God is saying, my patience has run out. The opportunity to turn to me has passed. Isaiah, I will use your faithful preaching to harden these people. For generations they've loved their sin instead of me, and now the situation has become irreversible for them. They will not turn to me, and I will bring judgment on their sin. The land will be laid waste. That is how God will use Isaiah's lifetime of service. He will use it to confirm the justice of God's judgment on these people who have heard the message but refuse to accept it. Now there is a bit more to it than that. In verse 13, having said the judgment will come, Judah and Jerusalem will be cut down like a tree, God goes on to say, there will be a stump left. And from that stump, new life will grow. God calls that remainder the holy seed. Who is that referring to? Well, Isaiah for one. We've seen Isaiah confess his sin. We've seen him receive God's forgiveness. And amid the majority who will press on to destruction, 
God is saying there will be others, a minority, who will join Isaiah, turning from their sin, receiving God's grace as he did, living according to God's wisdom instead of their own. That is how God will use Isaiah to confirm many in their rejection of God and call some into the family of God. Is that unique to Isaiah? No. All four of the New Testament Gospels tell us that Jesus Christ quoted this final section of Isaiah 6 to explain his own ministry. All four Gospels, a very significant passage for Jesus. Read the Gospels and see how that played out. Some responded to Jesus' call and they followed him. The many, the majority, ended up killing him. God's description of Isaiah's ministry applied to Jesus' ministry also. And the reality of this carries over into the ministry of Jesus' followers. Us. In this world that loves sin and chooses sin, many will reject our message. Some will respond to it. Yes, there will be seasons when significant numbers respond. Throughout history, there have been many times like that. Call them awakenings or revivals. Throughout history, there have been many of those in many different parts of the world. There are parts of the world that are experiencing that today. But when history is taken as a whole, the full sweep of history, the reality is that many continue to choose sin. Even when they hear the message presented faithfully and clearly, as Isaiah presented it, as Jesus presented it, still many choose sin instead. And some respond to the message with repentance and faith. Are you ready to serve God on those terms? With the realization that faithful witness may be met with rejection by many, hatred even, and if we are ready to serve on those terms, how do we do it without becoming weary and grim and cynical? Well, we need minds and hearts that are filled with the reality of our God on His throne. High and exalted, supreme in His majestic holiness. It was that vision at the beginning of Isaiah 6 that would sustain Isaiah throughout his ministry. Those long years of service, it was this vision that kept him going. It's the only thing that will sustain you and me and keep us going. We need to be constantly renewing our vision of God on his throne. And... We need to constantly remember the wonder of His purifying grace. The wonder that through the work of Jesus Christ, our guilt has been taken away. Our sin has been atoned for. When you and I have those two realities in mind, God's perfect power and His wonderful grace, what else would we want to do? but serve this great God who has forgiven us, who welcomes us as his dearly loved children, this high and exalted one who has become our father. What else would we want to do but say, here am I, send me. Not because the work will be easy, not because it will be glamorous, not because people will applaud us, but because the king is worthy. Let's respond to his word.
with praise and with commitment as we sing only a holy God and then let your kingdom come.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.